0: While well, I get it from the question asker's perspective that he apparently needs to be educated, you know, when you think about the toll that it, the cumulative toll that it takes on kids of being questioned about their existence.
1: And that is the voice of today's guest, Dr. Kara Ayers. Buckle up. We cannot wait for you to hear what Kara has to share with us. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Diversity on Fire. Our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply and act with more knowledge and compassion. We'll do this by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. This is Heather. This is Nina. Our guest today is the Associate Director and Assistant Professor at the University of Cincinnati Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. In addition to this work, she also is the director of the Center for Dignity in Healthcare for People with Disabilities and co-founder of the Disabled Parenting Project. This is just a small sample of the incredibly impressive resume coming from our guest today. We can't wait to dig a little bit deeper. So without further delay, please welcome Mrs. Kara
0: Ayers. Thank you so much, Heather and Nina. I'm really excited to be with you today.
1: Oh, you're welcome. That was a tongue twister. (laughs) 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 Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, do not apologize. Do not I <laughs> we was like, practice so just go slowly heather. <laughs> they name
0: things so ridiculously, you know? It's just really just call it what it is and move on. But <laughs> I, I love that.
2: So Kara, we like to have stories and conversations with our people and kind of get to know the essence of who you are. So can you tell us a little bit just about your backstory growing up and establishing a family and you know, just what led you to where you are in life today?
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> no small starting <laughs> question, right? Um, so, I was born in Frankfort, Kentucky. And I guess what's usually highlighted as the most notable thing about my birth is I was born with osteogenesis imperfecta, or OI. And that is a form of dwarfism that causes my bones to break easily. So, I'm about four foot three um, and use a wheelchair for mobility. And I've broken around 70 times, um, in my life. Um, so most of the time in childhood and adolescence, which definitely, you know, shapes that experience and also a few times as an adult. And so that, uh, piece of my life as a proud disabled person has its medical sides. And then it also has the identity portion of that for me, which has definitely changed over time. Largely in Kentucky, I was the only person with a disability, um, like my own that I knew, and, you know, I was really fortunate, though, that my family prioritized connecting me um, to other kids with disabilities. And that wasn't easy because, you know, we didn't have We didn't have the internet back then in the same way. So whereas, you know, now you can hop online and really connect. Um, For me, it was going to conferences every couple of summers. And actually at one of those conferences when we were like nine or 10, that was where I met who would become my future husband. And so we uh, if fast forward through kind of college degrees and things like that, which are also a huge part of me and who I am. um, My husband, who also has OI, Uh, We were married in 2009 and started our family shortly thereafter, and we have um, three kids. So, uh, almost 14-year-old, he'll be 14 on Saturday, a 10-year-old, and a 4-year-old. So, that is kind of the personal side of my life. and it has definitely influenced the professional side of my life, which is I'm trained as a psychologist, um, but I, I don't see patients in the clinical sense. Like, uh, you know, you would think as a psychologist, I'm able to still use that training though to conduct research and also to really work on the way that people think about equity and diversity and just kind of, Social justice and the goals that, you know, I hope that we all have for our society. So I'm able to work on kind of a systemic level in that way. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. There's a lot of
1: moving parts in that, but. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So. You mentioned diversity in um in your field. What does diversity mean to you as it relates to disabilities and people with disabilities?
0: It's a great question because too often disability is left out of the diversity conversation. And I think that's because we're taught that disability is only defined in the medical sense. So when you think about even awareness campaigns, a lot of times there are things like, at least for my disability, there are things like um you know, people with OI have blue sclera. We often have like the whites of our eyes are blue and our heads are somewhat triangular shaped. It's like these list of symptoms that we're taught and that's how we're taught to be aware of people with OI. And while I guess some of those factoids are interesting to me, they don't at all get it what the experience of living with OI is like. And so there are medical aspects of things like chronic pain and you know, navigating a career or motherhood with medical concerns, but there are much more social aspects of diversity that I think other marginalized groups can relate to. Things like, you know, empl- things like microaggressions, when somebody makes a statement to you that you know how to different, you know, it kind of like landed differently than what they intended, but the landing definitely mattered. Um, things like, you know, ex- just um, overt discrimination and like the job front or in other aspects of our world. So I see so much more meaningful connection of disability to diversity, then most, I think, are benefiting from thinking about both diversity and disability in that way. And so it's just, to me, an unfortunate loss for all of us that we're not being able to dive into those conversations as much as I wish we could.
2: And there's so much behind that, because I will say that even in the year that we've been doing this podcast, I think both of us are experiencing that understanding in a much more definitive and cellular way. So in your experience, when did you recognize, at about what age did you recognize that you weren't considered to be normal, quote unquote? When when did that become real for you?
0: Um, pretty early on because my disability is visible in a lot of ways. I was using a wheelchair off and on by kindergarten. Um, and so I think just statements that other kids would come up I definitely have a very like vivid flashbulb memory of a kid who had super thick like coke bottle glasses who came up and I remember we were eye to eye I was in my wheelchair and so he was a little guy and he came up in, in a very strong Kentucky accent which I have and had then too he said what's wrong with you And I remember it was interesting because it was, my mom empowered me to tell him that that, you know, like that I could, I was free to answer him however I wanted. So I didn't have that like, kind of like manners expectation that sometimes we put on kids with disabilities that like, if people ask questions, it's better than staring. So you should tell him that you have this disability. So I I don't remember exactly what my mom said, but something along the lines of like, you know, you can answer however you feel. And so I think I told him something like, you know, that's not how you ask somebody a question or something. Um, And I don't think many kids kind of ever get that permission to, um, to develop their own kind of responses to those questions, because while I, I get it from the question asker's perspective that he apparently needs to be educated, you know, when you think about the toll that it, the cumulative toll that it takes on kids of being questioned about their existence, which is primarily, you know, when you ask that question of how did I know, it was primarily because other people were constantly asking me what was wrong with me. So I think it's important that we empower kids to answer that question also with their needs and consideration too, not just awareness of the other person.
1: This is actually something that we were just talking about the other day. Nina was mentioning it because she said, you know, there is an understanding that if someone is asking, yes, that is a good thing because there's an interest rather than them having, making assumptions that could negatively impact. But at the same time, why is the burden always on you? Right. You know, the burden is always on the person that is seen as different or seen as the minority in a situation. So yeah, that's I'm glad that you said that. And I love that your mom said that to you because <laughs> yeah. I think that is so empowering. I really, and I get, and it, it's well-intentioned for mm-hmm. parents to try to make sure that their kids are polite right. and, and let them know, you know, try to do it this way. But at the same time, like sometimes you just need to be like, nah, uh-uh, that's, well, that's not how we're going to do it. Yeah, that's not how not gonna, we're going to
2: Yeah. yeah I, so what do you, because we actually haven't talked about this, but I know- we probably will have several people who are parents listening. In your advice with with interacting with people who are different and you have questions, which first of all, sometimes when you're, we're talking with about children specifically, generally they're going to ask because that's just like the inquisitive nature of youth. But uh-huh. how would you teach parents to direct their children to be mindful of other people? Yeah.
0: You know, I think I- ideally we would have some education coming from the parents before they have those first encounters with visibly disabled people. And there are some excellent books out there. Um, One that stands out that I really love is a new release. It's called What Happened to You? Because that question is asked so often. And um, it's written by a disabled dad who um, has a leg amputation himself. And I love that it centers the disabled kids perspective of what it's like to be asked a question like that repeatedly. And it's fun and humorous. But so, you know, reading books is important. But it's also important to know that lots of kids books about disability reinforce a lot of stereotypes that we're trying to avoid. So, you know, you got to be choosy. You can't just, you know, think that and and in my house, we we kind of read them all. And we talk about ones that don't have the best messaging and we kind of, because I want to really, again, give that freedom to push back on narratives. When we read a book, that doesn't necessarily mean the book, you know, told us exactly what we need to do. Maybe we can ask if that was what we would do. Um, And I think asking questions is often okay. You know, the types of questions we ask matter. And one of the ways that I, I encourage parents to push back on maybe super personal questions would be, I know, you know, I, If I'm talking to a child, you know, I know you're really curious about how she might use the bathroom, but think about how, you know, you wouldn't want to be asked that. So, again, it's kind of that normalizing and helping the child see that we or another kid with a disability are more alike them than different. And so it helps them kind of humanize that experience where I think too often when we encourage just ask, which is actually a slogan that is sometimes used to try to negate staring you know, but it's almost, again, like we're putting people in these interesting power divides where people with disabilities to be accepted should just answer any question that anybody has. And, you know, that's not really moving us where I think we want to go.
1: I agree. I agree. And I am so guilty of asking inappropriate questions just because I don't think I ever grew out of that kid phase. (laughs) (laughs) I think (laughs)
0: curiosity is good and it's totally the way it's (laughs) delivered too. And, you know, also yeah. if you know a person that matters too, you know, if it's your friend and, you know, you want to, you know, friends share all kinds of things. So I think that's like a tricky social dynamic of this too is like the, your relationship with a person matters.
1: Yeah, I agree. I'm working, working on my tact. <laughs> well,
2: I, even when you're saying this and, and I'm going to say something that, on the surface is going to sound demeaning, so I recognize that, but I, I, I do want to bring to attention it's happened so many times on my wall. So one of the things I like to do on my Facebook wall is just show weird things, and so sometimes I'll get a trend going. So one of those trends is uh, people who have really funky nail artwork sometimes mm-hmm. super long nails, things like that. And what I noticed that not initially, I think I thought it was funny, but then it kept coming up over and over and over to the point where it started to annoy me was that question that you asked about how do you how do they use the bathroom? I'm like, why is that so? Why is that a focus? Like, why is that a thing? And why, even though I've posted, like, I don't know, 50 of these, does it get asked every single time? And then I started thinking about how that might affect people. I don't know, Just I just understood kind of instinctually after having it happen so many times, maybe because it was reminiscent of things that have happened to me also, where I was like, at some point, the question's just inappropriate and I don't think it's really coming from an honest place. And that's hard to say to people that you care about and like, but it it's not really because you're interested in that. It's it's a it's a form of demeanment.
0: Yeah, and it's a fine line because if, if you take it, out of context too, then, you know, people can always push back and say, I was just asking a question. You know, so I think there's some of that gaslighting sometimes that happens too when you notice a theme like that. And it, it's just kind of de—I mean, for kids asking that, I think there's more of a curiosity question, but for adults asking that, which I have also been asked by adults, it's kind of dehumanizing, you know? I mean, it's like, would you ask somebody else that? And any you know, there's different variations of that. Like, how do you have sex? How do, I've had a random stranger ask me, you know, did you have your daughter vaginally? And I'm like, please wow. don't inquire about anything related to
1: my vagina. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. I so while we're on this topic, and I'm not going to ask you those questions, okay. but while but while we're on this topic, I wonder if you can share since we are, you know, we're we're having open conversation mm-hmm. on a podcast that hopefully a lot of people will hear. And what would you sh- what would you share openly? What, what are some things that you can tell able-bodied people that are challenges for yourself or from clients, people that you know that have other disabilities than you, that we may not even think about that are daily challenges that you go through?
0: Yeah. Um, it's been interesting kind of reentering after the pandemic world because my home, both in a physical sense, thankfully, and I'm Privileged to be able to make parts of my home accessible, um, but my home is not like if you came into my home, you wouldn't be struck by like, oh, little people must live here, you know. <laughs> Even though most of us are like it, it looks for the most part like a home. But uh, you know, in the last year, I've mostly been in the home, and we've largely been isolated. So it is interesting to go back out of the world and deal with a lot of the stairs that I've kind of had an interesting reprieve from longer than I ever have in my life. Um, so this. The staring is something that can, again, kind of have a cumulative effect. Most days I'm just, you know, it it is what it is, but some days it can take a toll. Um, A lot of the things, you know, that I think about with that question are social things in terms of the way that people just interact oddly with me. You know, they either, it's either intrusive questions that you don't expect, or sometimes I will ask a question and people will seem so befuddled that they just will stare at me. I mean, my daughter and I were at a gymnastics meet, and we came into the bathroom and at a gymnastics meet, so their women's bathroom is a hot commodity. everybody needs to change, and you know, so I guess because of social distancing, the people were all like spread out, but there was no line, but there was a good like ten to fifteen people, and so I said, "Oh, where does the line start?" And everybody just stared at me in this frozen stance of like <laughs> and it wasn't a hard question, so I looked around, you know, and I even checked with my daughter once we sorted out and got out. I said, were you able to hear me? Like, because, you know, behind the mask, maybe. And she was like, yeah, I don't know why they all started like that. Um, So it's this weird, like, disconnect where people just don't, you know, just be cool. Like, (laughs) you don't have to be alarmed. And that's so uh, odd.
2: That would never happen with Heather or I. (laughs) uh, (laughs) That is so strange. Like, What do you think, I mean, I know this is speculation and sometimes you're not supposed to speculate, but in that moment, because I've had situations kind of like that, where you're just like, what, what is going on? So (laughs) what do you, what do you think? Because sometimes I have no idea what's going on, um, (laughs) other than you're like, do you just not like me? Because I know you're not deaf. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) (laughs) what is
0: happening? Yeah, I, um... I don't know. I mean, it mostly remains a mystery to me. I have thought about how, you know, gymnastics is an interesting sport because it's very, you know, in some ways appearance-based and superficial. And so, you know, when I am in different crowds, I do notice different maybe levels of stares or like shock that I've spoken or, and I would say like nobody's immune to that. this. So I, I would say that, you know, if audience members, maybe are part of groups that you know, even if they, they talk about social justice and they, I have also come into groups like that that have been confused about kind of where I fit and, um, and just not, not seeing that disability is a part of diversity and, and social justice and those pieces. So, I, you know, it's, it's lots of different groups, I think, that have varying levels of acceptance of differences, which is what it comes down to.
1: I think it, uh, immersion is the solution for so many things? I think I have an ex family member, ex by divorce. Thankfully, it was it's a good thing that yeah. they're ex. But the one thing that this person had, the quality that they had, is that they could literally talk to somebody with half a face, and, and they would talk to them like like there was nothing to see or do. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that is a really admirable quality, in mm. my opinion, because yeah. I don't care what you look like. You mm-hmm. still have all the same organs as me. Like, we're still human. Like, our hearts and our brains, we still feel. Yeah. So um, it hurts my heart when we talk about how that might make people with disabilities feel. Because mm-hmm. I can't imagine on a daily basis, you know, you're going through all the same stuff we all are. Yeah. Plus, And that's yeah. that's challenging. And then you also have three children. <laughs> so as, yeah. as a mom, and by the way, I did check out your Instagram. They're all <laughs> freaking adorable for everybody I'm wondering. <laughs> um, so as a mom of three kids, how do you help empower them to understand how they may be different, how to accept how they may be different or how others may be different and maybe even empower themselves to look at their differences as like a superpower?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely something that we go for in our family in terms of um, seeing the positives and approaching things from a, um, you know, a strengths perspective and having a lot of cultural pride in disability, which I think is like mind blowing for some people because they think like, wait, what, how in the world could disability be a culture and something that you're proud of? Because we've been taught through so many messages that disability is something we want to avoid, we could want to prevent it, we want to cure it. So it's really uh, you know, not the majority opinion to look at it from that perspective. And, and so we take pride in our family in the way that we do make an effort to do that in terms of both in kind of a rebellious way, in terms of as, uh, I'm trying to think of the word like kind of as a pushback against mainstream views of disability, but also as having, you know, not even giving away that kind of power that like we're doing this in spite of others, but just as an honest reflection of what we see in our family. And it is challenging. I, my mom role is my hardest, but my most um, cherished. And it's lots of different pieces in our family in terms of, um, you know, we have two daughters that do not have disabilities. And um, we have my son who does have a disability and is also Chinese. So integrating parts of his, you know, ethnic identity and his disability identity And he, we adopted him at seven, so not having the opportunity to do that from, you know, birth up like we have with my daughters. And then my daughters who don't have a disability, teaching them to be allies and also, you know, they are a part of the community, not in a direct way in terms of that they're disabled people, but on both a strength side and also a challenges side. Because, I mean, when their family is, you know, faces discrimination and oppression, they very much feel those ramifications as being the kids of two disabled parents. So they're in an interesting kind of between world because, um, you know, my 10 year old, you know, when she's outside our home at school or at sports, um, you know, her friends don't see us. And so there's sometimes the challenge of when they see us and they say like, oh, is that your mom? And she's gotten much more nuanced at, you know, responding to that. But, you know, at, at kindergarten, I remember it was a really, a difficult year because I came in for one of like the parent days and the tone in which the other little girls were like, is that your mom? And, you know, it was very hurtful and confusing to her as to why people would react like that. And it is tricky to build disability identity in a way in somebody that doesn't have a disability, <laughs> um, but it's a piece of her family culture. So, um, yeah, so just different challenges and, but all connected and I'm glad we're in it together. So
1: We have been told, and I completely understand where this comes from, although I will admit I never thought of it before, is that um, we need to stop portraying people with disabilities as the inspirational story. Mm -hmm. And as I don't remember what the other term was. And I was like, gosh, you know that I never thought about that. Because that's what I want to say. I'm like, Jeez, I don't even have any kids, and I'm like my dog and my cat. I'm like, jeez, if I can get them fed and everybody's cool by the time it's ready to go to work, and you're dealing with three kids, and you're dealing with challenges that I I don't have to deal with in any way, shape, or form. So I'm just like, jeez, I'm I'm inspired by you. But again, going yeah. back to that terminology, it's been applied to people with disabilities in a way that has been harmful. Yeah. To those with disabilities that maybe haven't reached the bar of being inspirational or maybe they just wanna be people and they don't wanna be someone's storyline. Right.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and I think what what we were we were told is basically it's the pendulum, right? Either it's like fetishized or or it's just what you don't wanna be. And so right. I'm gonna use that to kind of swing into the next point. So with your experience in healthcare and kind of right now what's going on with coronavirus, but to to mesh the two together, one of the things that has been interesting for me to witness is the whole concept of the anti-vax movement and the greatest, shouldn't say greatest, the most horrible outcome being that your kid Become autistic, right? Uh So we will risk death or whatever as long as we don't have an autistic kid, never mind that we know that the science behind that is illegitimate. But it really, I heard it before, but I don't think I really had any connection to it until, first of all, I started having friends who had autistic children. And then also, now that we have something where we're doing a major push to get people protected. And there's this fear of, I don't know what, but disability and that being like the end all most horrific family outcome that we can have. So therefore, we will risk our lives over it. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit? And then we'll kind of let you segue into your experience with healthcare and kind of what's going on right now. I know that's kind of a big jump, but...
0: (laughs) No, I think it's related. Yeah, it's extremely... I can think of so many feelings words as a psychologist, you know, enraging harmful that basically most of the underlying tenets of the anti-vax movement is that idea that, um, you know, death is preferable to disability. Again, even though regardless, this has been shown time and time again, it's just sickening how much money has been poured into showing again, that it's false again, that it's false. And, um, so that is extremely frustrating. I mean, I was, uh, a little bit I sometimes I need some like lighthearted moments of disability humor to pull me out of the depth of how much that is bothersome and I saw some of my friends who are autistic when they got their vaccine posting things like you know I hope it leveled me up and I hope I, <laughs> you know so I love and I saw another friend who has a disability but isn't autistic and says you know I'm really crossing my fingers I have so many great autistic friends that I'm hoping this gives me the the jolt I need to join them and so you know, within the community, there's some humor, I think, to cope with how hurtful those messages are that death would be preferable, and just how anti-science, and then add that on top of how disproportionately people with disabilities have been impacted by and died from COVID, and then, you know, the challenges we've had accessing the vaccine, that it just kind of adds salt to those wounds that people would perpetuate these awful, just false messages, and, um, Yeah. So that those messages that just go hand in hand with the anti-vax movement and communication are just ableism. I mean, they're almost in their, in its purest forms and we have to call them what they are. And in my opinion, you can't have that message and say, but I don't, I'm not ableist. No, yes, you are. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I appreciate, I, I don't know, am I like, Weird, advancing age. I'm starting to appreciate when people are more overt. When you know, just tell me. Tell me you're going to be a huge bigot, and
1: you know, be <laughs> us get it
0: out, <laughs> out there. Yeah, right. Just lay it
1: on the table. <laughs> we'll know where we stand. We don't even have to pretend. Exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah. Save save us all the energy. And but
1: so
2: actually, uh, and I consider myself like pretty educated on coronavirus, but I, I'm not that familiar with how it's affected the people with disabilities um, community. So can you share that with us some information in that regard?
0: Yeah. So in many ways, the way that COVID has impacted our community is tied to so many other social disparity issues. So, you know, in the early days of coronavirus, we started realizing pretty quickly that segregated living or segregated, yes, but congregate living situations like nursing homes, people were at much higher risk of death. And most of the time, when most people think of nursing homes, they think of just elderly people. But nursing homes also are where, unfortunately, a lot of people with disabilities of all ages reside, including kids. Um, there are kids with disabilities in nursing homes. And that's not because it's the only place that we could serve them. You know, our society has Priorities to get people with disabilities living and supported in the community. And not only is it actually more affordable to do that, to pay for care in a community setting, but it has much better outcomes. So that's something that disability advocates have been, you know, talking about for years, but we saw the toll of that just in the massive deaths in those congregate settings. And then, you know, so we, people with disabilities at large were about um, twice as likely to be hospitalized if we acquired COVID. Um, and 3.5 times more likely to acquire COVID. And so not only you think about those segregated congregate settings where people live in crowded situations, but you also have people that may need care providers to come to their home. And there were all kinds of awful situations with that, either caregivers not coming to homes because of isolating and, you know, um, or, you know, you're going home to home to home. And so there was a lot of spread within that. And then the last point that is, you know, ongoing as you know, many equity issues inequity issues are, they don't kind of stop once we, we think they got a little better, is that once a person with a disability enters a hospital, you know, they're more at risk for inequitable treatment. And so, you know, an example of that would be that if I enter a hospital, I need a little bit more in different care than what you might in terms of I'm probably going to need help transferring in and out of the bed if I'm you know sick or and the bed's not accessible to me. And the hospitals were so surged with capacity that many people with disabilities didn't get those things that they needed extra. And in some cases, it resulted in deaths. There's um, a really sad story out, out of California where he wasn't in the ICU. So his health wasn't such that, you know, he was in a decline that much, but he um, needed some help keeping his mask on. And instead they restrained him because the staff didn't know how to handle a patient with autism. Um, and his mask slipped down and he was found dead in his bed. Um, and so really I think that's a inequitable treatment option. And the response to the hospital was, well, we didn't have enough nurses to do the bed checks as regularly as we did. You know, usually we, the nurses were overworked. Um, So yeah, it's a lot coming at our disability community. COVID has come at us a lot of different ways. And it's been exhausting because it's felt like you're trying to fight the battle on so many different fronts and all the while losing members of our community.
1: First of all, I just want to, and I think we've said this, but I want to say it again. I appreciate the work that you're doing. What you're doing is so important to not only put this information out there through your platforms, make people aware of it but to fight that battle. Because like what you're saying, even within your the community that you're fighting within, there's so many different angles to it. Mm-hmm. And we need someone in every single area to do this. So it's really, really important. You make me when you describe the not knowing how to kind of work with him, so they restrained him. Yeah. That that makes. I mean, we talk we talk a lot about the police situations, of yes. course, and and we are supportive of good law enforcement. Mm-hmm. However, there is a big issue with them dealing with things in appropriate manners yeah. um, in a lot of ways, and we've seen that as well. People with mental illness, they are in crisis. People with disabilities, Nina. Mm-hmm. Nina is very, uh, she is an avid Facebooker. Yeah. <laughs> so she, she posted something, um, uh, a, a elderly woman with dementia and, and the treatment that she had gotten. And it's just yeah. bringing it. So I think the first step, right, for people that aren't, you're, you're, you're intimately and directly mm-hmm. involved. The first step for us who are not and may anyone that's listening is to listen. Mm-hmm. When you say this is happening, We need to accept that it's true and pay closer attention because when we hear it, it's startling and baffling. And we almost want to say that's not possible. Right. But it is possible and it is happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some ways that you've seen things go in a positive direction? Um, Not necessarily COVID related.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I have a a COVID related one. I've been super impressed by grassroots organizations. There's a great one out in California, Disability Justice Club, I want to say, um, that, I mean, days after the pandemic, they rallied at a grassroots level and were getting k- kind of care packages to disability, to disabled people's homes, things like the things that were in really short supply in those first few days, things like cleaning wipes and sanitizers and hand sanitizer and masks. And because as many of us were rushing out to get those things, you know, you've got a lot of people that because of transportation, they didn't have the chance to go to, you know, Kroger and complain that it the shelves were empty. It just wasn't an option to get there in the first place. So i really learned that in terms of funding, if we could get more funding to these grassroots organizations, that could make a difference on the ground to direct people, that is so critical and they can do it so much more with more, so much more agility, too. You know, they know these communities and they're, and that's true with vaccines now, too. You know, we talked a little bit about the anti vax movement, which to me is completely separate of people that, for lots of legitimate reasons, including not trusting research because they've been exploited for years, people of color, people with disabilities. Um, so I see that group that is more vaccine hesitant or vaccine uncertain as totally different than, you know, the anti vax movement, but we're hearing that, you know, different messengers and different messages work for different people. So um, we really need to be creative. And I I don't say that like in a manipulative way, but in an authentic way to figure out kind of who people need and want to hear from and will trust so that, you know, we can all be safe because we still have a lot of people that are, we're getting to the point where they could get a vaccine, but they're still worried and hesitant
2: those histories are so true and tragic and you know and in the same way that you're educating us i just in the last few years i've been educated on so many things so for example just how gynecology of things got where it's at is has such a horrific start you know and and i don't know how you um I don't know how you reach those populations aside from certain members of the population. For example, so for me for African Americans, stepping up and saying, All right, I'm making sure I'm going to some place I trust where I think they have their best, you know, people's best interests in mind and being part of the the solution and then using my voice to amplify that. Are you finding that has been a challenge in your and the and I say in your community, and even that feels inappropriate. I'm not sure what to say because disability covers so many things. I technically fall into it because I have ADD. Um, But among people with disabilities, are you you finding that to still be such a significant challenge? Or are you finding that you have gotten good advocates and there is some breakthrough, though it may be slow?
0: I hope it's um, the latter, that there is some breakthrough, but it may be slow. And it is hard because we're such a, you know, a heterogeneous, such a different group within the community. For some people, being African American might be a much more important identity to them than being disabled. And so, you know, having tons of messages from disability community members may not resonate with them as much as having somebody from their community, you know, of people of color that would speak to them or a community of faith or, you know, so it's difficult too, to parse out the different identities. And part of me in my urgency and my own anxiety about COVID is you know, I kind of want to sweep away the like, um, the history of awfulness that accompanies why people are worried about this. I want to say, well, yeah, that was terrible. And but but you need to get this, you know, and I think part of that problem is we've never really addressed that. And we've never had many discussions. And a lot of people who are worried about this can't actually tell you much about the history, but they just kind of have this feeling that's been passed down to them from hearing snippets of conversations or maybe reading something here or there. And, you know, you don't have to be like historically informed to have a right to have that kind of concern because you're right. Your best interest as a person of, you know, that status, whether it be African-American, person with a disability, other groups that have been mistreated in research, you know, has been exploited. And, One of the challenges with uh, many of us with different disabilities and like my condition is classified as a rare disease is when somebody asks me, but were people like me included in the clinical trials for these vaccines? I can't actually tell them yes to that because largely people with disabilities are excluded from clinical trials because of our disability being a potential confounding factor. So everything that science tells us tells us that We'll be safe because you know of the mechanisms and the massive the massive size of the study. But it is one of those frustrating things for our community is that in the same way that you know other non-disabled people can say, "Well, I know that this was tested on you know however many tens of thousands of people like me." I don't really have that exact certainty. Um, I still feel definitely confident and extremely thankful that I'm vaccinated, but. That's a legitimate question I think that people have.
1: I think we we try to like you said sweep away the very real factor that is generational trauma, generational anxiety and exactly what you're saying. It doesn't have to have happened to you if you witnessed your mom or your grandma or your dad have a have such a paralyzing anxiety about a certain situation that's going to transfer to you. And yeah. it doesn't matter if you can articulate why or not. It's still there. So this, what I'm hearing is between the two of you is that, first of all, we need to acknowledge that. That is a very real thing. And moving forward, it, it, and we have to try to address it on a situational basis. Yeah. But also that the most positive progress we can make and the way we can challenge both that and other things is on a grassroots level. Mm-hmm. In your own community, because that's where you can really get the most conversation going is you know, put your voice out there for the world to hear, but then start the conversation at, at home, yeah, in your own community,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. And that's why, too, I'm super glad that you came on because the nice thing is, you know, for talking to someone such as yourself who's had a very different life experience, is that I think that to some degree. People like Heather and I try to anticipate a lot of things, but until you just give us some really straightforward, simple examples of they can't get to the store, so how are they going to get supplies, or we're not included in the studies, it doesn't even factor because there's mm-hmm. an assumption made. And you know, just thinking about all the different types of diversity at large... Just awareness is such a big deal. And so sitting here thinking about all the things that I just simply wouldn't ever have the fortitude to or the the ability to conceptualize until someone just says, hey, this is one of the reasons why this isn't the case. And then your immediate recognition of, oh, my gosh, the next thing is, OK, so what are we doing to address that? And is there anything being done to address that? Mm-hmm.
1: I want to know, is there... Is there something that you're super passionate about right now? Is there something that you really want to share off the cuff? Anything that you wanna put out there or maybe promote?
0: Yeah, I so as part of my work I direct the Center for Dignity and Healthcare for People with Disabilities. And we've talked mostly about COVID, but we luckily our center was founded a few months before COVID, which I say luckily because I'm so glad that we were remind you know, we're reminded now that these issues existed before. COVID just kind of put a magnifying glass on them. But we have a number of other issues that we focus in on related to healthcare inequities. And so there's, I think of disparities as like that gap between healthcare outcomes for non-disabled people and disabled people. And there's a ton of stuff in that gap. So there's just our health differences. Also, there's, there's just a lot. There's social determinants of health. But there's a piece of that gap that are inequities, and those are influenced by ableism, which is the devaluing of the disabled life. And, you know, it's it's um, it's surrounding us, kind of like a smog that, you know, whether we see it or not, it's there. And so we really hone in on that piece that how do people with disabilities get worse health care because of ableism? And so we look at it in organ transplantation and prenatal diagnosis and prevention of suicide. Um and also, you know, aging with a disability. And so, I am also reminding myself when I talk about this that my issues um, that I'm really passionate about existed before COVID, and there's still so much work to do after it. So, while we definitely have this urgent focus with COVID, I think it's also presented as some opportunities both to focus in, but also it's presented us some great solutions that I don't want all of them to go away. I mean, look at how we've, like, really leverage things like home delivery as a normalized aspect of life, that could make a huge difference for people with disabilities. You know, working from home for people with disabilities has just opened up this potential. So there's no doubt, you know, COVID has has just been um, awful in every way. But our response to COVID has some glimmering, you know, sparkles of potential that I hope we can all hang on to and not let not let fade.
1: I love that. And you just... Threw in some other gems that I hadn't (laughs) really considered. It's true, you know, the home delivery—that's a big deal. Yeah, so we think we think about convenience, right? Oh, well, it's convenient for all everybody, but it's it's semi necessary convenient for some. I mean, you you put yourself out there as as someone that you have certain privileges that other people with disabilities don't, and if we think about that, I mean not everyone can just hail an Uber, right? Not everyone can drive a car. And even if you can drive a car, is do you have the ability to adapt it to drive the way you need it to drive? So there's so many different factors that we don't think about. So home delivery, while it may, may seem so like, ooh, instant gratification for some of us, right. it's such an important piece for some people.
0: Yeah. And it's so cool that it is built into our society right now. So I don't have to go to like, the app for disabled people to get home delivery, which, which undoubtedly would cost astronomically more, you know, Um, it's part of what is built in right now as an option for lots of people for lots of reasons. And, you know, I hope we, yeah, we hang on to that kind of normalization of those different, um, different services. And you're exactly right. Like, the adaptation of cars and those extra services add up. There was an interesting article that actually took some data and tried to summarize what they call as the disability tax. Um, and they found it to be like between twelve and $16,000 a year of what people on average have as just disability-related costs that add up. And, you know, so it costs more to be a disabled person. And then, you know, we're also more likely to live in poverty. So there's there's this you know, cumulative effect that really um, presents some barriers for our communities.
2: Well, it's true. And they say necessity is the mother of invention. So yeah. I think that, because we touched on it in our roundtable, just a lot of the television ads, if people still watch ads, I like ads, I'm weird.
0: <laughs> I don't mind
2: either, Yeah, Of all the gadgets that people make the ridiculous commercials about, and learning that those gadgets often were developed for people with disabilities. And then they mainstream them because they just made things so much more functional for everyone. And so that there's a benefit for considering the audience.
0: Yeah. Um, There are so many parenting tools now that, you know, have allowed me as a mom to parent more actively because I have such a wide, there's so many parenting gadgets, like that market is just huge. And so I've been able to kind of pick from that and figure out what works for me. And um, yeah, Every so often, people will send me like a new prototype for a stroller attachment for a wheelchair or something. But I've definitely learned to temper my excitement because until it gets picked up for like the mainstream market, it's either going to be largely inaccessible to people because of the price. It's going to be astronomical or, you know, it's just not ever going to be manufactured because, they're, you know, it's not seen as the demand and the supply. So I'm really grateful when products get adopted into that typical mainstream market because that's when we can, yeah, and we got some great things to offer y'all. So (laughs) lots of problem solving and creativity.
1: You know what I love is, and I, cause I know you have a dog. I had a client, this was my first interaction with service dogs. I had a client um, when I used to live in Minnesota and she was uh, essentially a foster mom where she trained the service dogs for an organization called Helping Paws. And so she trained the service dogs, which would then, you know, go to their forever homes. And she, we sat down for a little while and I was like, so what are you, because I would watch them, you know, she's she's very, very hands-on, of course. And they're very like attentive. They have to learn very specific things. And the things that she did, you know, they help put on socks. They help Mm -hmm. like open doors. Some of them can do, they have to be the handle thing. So, um, I just think that's so amazing, and I do think that that's also a resource that I wish mm-hmm. was available to more people with disabilities yeah. because a wide range of disabilities i mean straight away from any sort of p t s d mm-hmm. to someone with mobility issues can benefit from that um, do you and that now I'm kind of gonna get myself into the actual question, <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> promoting service dogs um. Do you have any go-to resources for maybe just the listeners that are both able-bodied and Mm non-able-bodied that they can go to to just learn more, immerse themselves more, and or resources for those that that, uh, have mobility issues where they can find help, essentially?
0: Yeah. Related to service dogs or in general?
1: In general. I just like dogs, but (laughs) in general.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think our Best source of support is each other. So our, com- I find community-based resources really helpful. I obviously am biased towards U.S.E.D.S. as I, that's my primary position. Is I'm the associate director of our Cincinnati U.S.E.D. and U.S.E.D.S. are in every state. There's at least one, and they're University Centers for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. So U C E D D. Uh, we like our acronyms in the disability field. Um, and you know, while well, it says developmental disability, many people don't understand that that encompasses disabilities acquired before the age of 22. So that's a large proportion of people with disabilities. But we are also part of networks that include like the traumatic brain injury um, organizations in states and spinal cord injury groups. So we're part of a larger network that if somebody didn't fall under that huge umbrella of developmental disability, there's still resources that cross, you know, cross those different divides. Also, Centers for Independent Living in communities, those are spread out more in like a city format. So you're more likely to have that in your city rather than in your state. And then, yeah, I mean, I have to take you up on service dog promotion because Rocky is just incredible. And yeah, I'm incredibly grateful to his puppy raiser was named Becky. Shout out to Becky. And to be able to teach him so much and then to give him, you know, up to the program to go on to fulfill His, you know, what she definitely thinks of as kind of his destiny is just such a selfless task. And yeah, Rocky can do incredible things for me. But I think the thing that never kind of gets listed on the tasks, it's maybe one of the most important things he does for me is that when we go out as a family and we have Rocky, people's entire demeanor changes towards our family. So there's definitely still staring. It almost gives people like permission to stare a little bit because I mean, everybody stares at a dog. But you don't stare with the same look and it gives like an entryway socially to say like, oh, what's his name or "What's?" And so it just sets this totally different tone that was one of my reasons for applying for a service dog was just changing the whole like way that our family interacts with the community when we go out. And so that's one of Rocky's superpowers that, you know, isn't like a command, but it's just something that he, his energy Creates for all of us in this space, so it's really cool.
1: And by the way, I saw his rainbow costume for Halloween. (laughs) It was adorable. (laughs) He, yes, he puts up with me and all of us. In one, yeah, in one of the pictures, he was just like, really, I know, really.
0: (laughs) He's a very sophisticated, serious man. So, but that would not probably be his his personal choice. But
2: I love it. Well, everybody loves. We're dog lovers, like through and through and through. So. I'm going to ask you one final question for me anyway, and that is, so one of the things in preparation for our month was learning, like the ADA happened so recently, a lot of the gains uh, for people with disabilities are very, very recent, especially compared to civil rights in other areas. What, what areas do you think that we still need to, like, where does doesn't the ADA go far enough with? What what are a couple of key things that we still need to look at in terms of improvement for people with disabilities and inequity in our country?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, First, uh, just, you know, applying the ADA would be a good start. We could start with that because unfortunately, 31 plus years, we're not quite there. I was 11 when the ADA passed. So, I um, am part of what they call the ADA generation in that I do have like a pre-ADA and a post-ADA. And actually the same is true for me with the ACA, the Affordable Care Act. And that has huge ramifications for people with disabilities as well. So first we could start with, let's hold people accountable for the law that we passed more than 30 years ago. But it definitely does need to go further in terms of some specific things, like when the ADA was written, Uh, The Internet was not what it is today, so there have been some landmark cases that have clarified that, yes, websites do need to be accessible, but we're not quite there yet. Um, So, as work on one of my projects related to COVID, um, the Disability Health Research Center at Johns Hopkins and our center collaborated, and um, we analyzed all of the state um, information pages for COVID. So, these are state-run pages by Department of Health, definitely should be accessible and um over 97% were not accessible. Some had hundreds of accessibility errors. So, you know, the internet is definitely a place that the ADA needs to branch into. And then also another piece would be parenting. Um, so more than half of the states in our country still have really egregious laws on the books that say things like a child can be removed from the custody of their parents on the status of disability alone. So there doesn't need to be neglect, abuse, just on that. And my state is one of those states. So the ADA, again, has been applied in a few court cases where they say, well, this law says you shouldn't discriminate on the basis of disability. (laughs) But it's not trickling down. And there are cases where families have been torn apart because of this. Um, You know, I worked on a very real case to me with a very real mom's face who was her baby was taken at the hospital, never to be reunited with her again. So it happens. And those would be my two top priorities would be online accessibility and um, and parenting. I Sorry, that's deep, I know. That's, I'm um,
1: <laughs> incredibly terrible. mad right now to hear that. I'm known um, for throwing out I, dingers at the end, sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, so one thing that again, you're doing, and it is a part of what we try to do with Diversity on Fire Obviously, we're not always talking about disabilities, um, but one thing that we are doing is we're learning along with a lot of other people. And yeah. so, as you mentioned, it we did our month on disability, a- well, we said disability slash ableism because we want to fight yeah. ableism. Exactly. And we realized, guess what? We're we need to actually adapt as well. So, it has come to we're now searching for how to transcript our. Audio files, because that is an important thing that we can and should do. So uh, the only reason I'm saying this is because I want everyone to maybe put themselves under a microscope and figure out simple things that they can do mm-hmm. to adapt in simple ways and uh, to acknowledge that, you know, it's not that hard. We can make we can make small changes to help other people, and we should be doing that.
0: I agree. I love the work you're doing because you know you're not. It's not about calling out; it's about calling in, and I think it takes um, you know bravery to recognize when there areas. And I mean, I have them too in the disability space, and definitely in in other spaces related to diversity where we're we're all you know in this together. And so, yeah, you're contributing to disabil- you know, to anti ableism with podcasts too that have nothing to do with disability because it's all towards that ultimate goal. So,
1: working together. So, yeah. <laughs> in your opinion, what do you think that we can do just us as Nina and I and all the people that are listening to us here today? What can we do today, just a small tangible action that we can do to kind of better engage with and better understand people with disabilities?
0: Yeah. A couple things. I think we can take some time to reflect on what messages you've been sent about disability. I think sometimes it helps us be a little bit less defensive if we think about it in terms of not, you know, what you think or what you believe about disability, but what were you taught? So, and in some cases that people say, well, I don't know, not anything because I didn't see, you know, did you have a disabled teacher? Did you have a disabled role model? Did you have, you know, have you ever seen a film that has a a character with a disability that, you know, it's about something other than only about that person's disability. You know, so there's so many questions I think we can ask ourselves and really reflect on maybe how we as a society got to here because we've been taught some really problematic messages about disability. So we need to undo that. It really, at this point, needs to be, you know, an anti-ableism movement because um, there's, there's messages that we need to undo as well as positive messages. And I think a really cool actionable step that you could take that you definitely will not regret would be to watch Crip Camp. Um, so it was just recommend. Yeah. So we just had our moment at the Oscars last weekend, which was so cool. There was a service dog on the red carpet. I th- oh, what happened? Yeah. Cause
2: actually, I didn't watch the Oscars, believe it or not. What, what yes. how, did, how did they do? I knew they were nominated. Spoiler
0: alert. They lost to oh. my teacher and, my octopus teacher which i saw and thought was an amazing film too i had to okay. defend the octopus a little bit <laughs> because <But, laughs> everybody in the dis- in disability twitter was quite mad at the octopus and i was like you got to watch the film it was amazing but Crip camp is such a great illustration of disability pride and um you know and the fact that it was filmed in an era pre-ada is even more interesting in that regard so i won't spoil it but just um watch Crip Camp and challenge yourself to think about disability in new ways.
2: It's a fantastically done documentary.
0: It is great. Yeah, there's humor and history and, and you don't feel like that you're watching, you know, an educational documentary in any way. So,
1: so we will put um, links in our show notes, of course. Uh, But did you want to share where you would most like to connect with people so that they can kind of stay in touch and follow what you're doing?
0: Yeah, I share a lot of my um, professional work-related stuff on Twitter. So at Dr. Kara, K-A-R-A, or it's D-R-K-A-R-A-A-Y-E-R-S. And you could follow our Center for Dignity at centerfordignity.com. And then, I mean, your viewers are welcome to follow me on Instagram as well. It's at Kara Ayers um, to see kind of the family side of our life too.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so, so much.
0: Again, this is awesome. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, it's fun to talk to you all. It's been
2: a wealth of information that was deeply needed. And uh, once again, just want to reiterate our heartfelt appreciation for you joining us.
0: Well, thank you so much. And thank you all for what you all do.
1: Thanks so much for listening in today. Our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply. And we hope today's conversation with Dr. Kara Ayers did just that. This week's call to action is to watch the movie Crip Camp, which can be found on Netflix, and or do some Googling and learn about the programs that are found locally in your neighborhoods and see if you can get involved. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions expressed on today's episode are our own. We do encourage you to do your own research and come to your own fact-based conclusion. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss or if you'd like to be a guest on our show, please reach out by email info at diversityonfire.com Or leave us a voice note. The link for that can be found in the show notes. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Diversity on Fire. And if you're enjoying the show, we would very much appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. And please, share the show with everyone you know so more people can join in these important conversations.
0: You know, just be cool. Like, (laughs) you don't have to be alarmed. Thank you.